0: Good morning, happy Monday, and this is John Halsman with our latest flagship view of Around the World in 20 Minutes, making sense of the beguiling new world that we live in. And I am in between full campaigning season, just back from L.A., and a a, a very fine Informa event, and a great event with Swiss Re in Zurich, managed to get home, get some sleep, and this week I'm off to play a war game with Barclays over the Indo-Pacific um, over the next couple days before coming back and next month it's on to Barcelona and then also Lake Como for a kind of home event so busy 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 but in between I wanted to keep things going and every m- week come rain or shine we do And Around the World in 20 minutes and uh, we have to do this time the 20th Party Congress of the Communist Party because this was a definitive political moment In the Indo-Pacific and thus in the world, as you know that we've said many times before, the Indo-Pacific is where most of the world's future economic growth will come from, as well as with the U.S. and Chinese superpowers vying for dominance in China's backyard, most of the world's political risk. And this was the big one. This is what Xi Jinping has been gearing toward for a long time. Since Xi came to power in 2012, he's accrued more personal power than any Chinese leader since Mao Zedong, which is a bad thing indeed. And in fact, we saw at the 20th Party Congress, he finally overcame the last vestiges of Deng Xiaoping. Deng was, of course, Mao's great rival. And after the death of Mao, Deng, I think, one of the greatest men of the 20th century, nobody knows anything about. If you read my last book, To Dare More Boldly, I think Deng Xiaoping is certainly one of the heroes of the book, as he lifted hundreds of millions of Chinese people out of poverty and did away with the megalomaniacal lunacy of one-man rule that Mao symbolized, Uh, bested the gang of four with Mao's particularly crazy wife and her far-left associates off Gua Guofeng, and then established a period of incredible prosperity by opening the Chinese economy. But also on the political front, what Deng did was to make the leadership collegial. There was no longer one leader who was chairman of any everything, but there was a collegial group at the top. And this has been the system that really held since Deng came to power in December 1978, all the way up until now. But since 2012, Xi has been nibbling away at, at this dungist system that has led to stability in China's rise and tried to reimpose uh, a Maoist system, which is particularly strange, as G uh, is a princeling, his father was a close associate of Mao's who was purged, and in fact, G was sent out to live in, in, in essence, in Shangxi province, in what amounts to a cave, and it's a bit like the Stockholm Syndrome. He seems to have fallen in love with his kidnapper and has adopted Maoist standards, which is a very odd course for his biography to take, but one that is clear now, And you see the end with the 20th Party Conference of this Dungist collegial leadership and Xi now being chairman of everything. The Politburo Standing Committee, uh, which is the seven people who really run China, in essence, it's now only one. And this can be seen at the personnel level because Li Queshen, who's been the prime minister, he comes from Shanghai. He's for the old Chinese model, which is trade-oriented open to the international system collegial he was the uh, he was mentored by Hu Jintao the last president of China before Xi. and he Li ka as best as anyone has stood up to Xi Jinping and tried to say things that that I don't approve of the way you're running the economy and I'm uncomfortable with you heading back to maoism well he's out he's not in the new politburo standing committee and in his place is the number 2 probably soon to be made premier in his place early next year in March, we have Li Um And, and Li Xinim is a protege of uh, Xi. In fact, all seven members of the Politburo are in Xi's factions. There's Xi and six other members. But uh, Li Xinim is um, the head of Shanghai, and he's the one who's installed the Zero COVID policy, Uh, which has been an unmitigated economic disaster and social disaster, but Xi doesn't care. What he cares is that Li Shanem has done what he wanted, and he's now been rewarded for his crazy loyalty, and he's going to be made the number two, even though he doesn't really have the administrative experience that normally goes with the job of being premier back to the days of Zhou Enlai um, under Mao. And so you have with the... The diminution of Li Qixin, the end of the Dengist system is premier, and with the installation of Li Qinim, you have the ascendancy bureaucratically of Xi Jinping. And so that all happened. But there was an amazing event as well. And we don't really know what it means as always with China, but it's fascinating. Hu Jintao, the old leader and the last vestige of Dengist rule it was put in place by Deng Xiaoping himself and then mentored people like Li Kishen to continue the collegial model was sitting on the stage. And the 20th Party Conference is carefully, painstakingly choreographed so that every single element is there. And suddenly, in the middle of all this boring choreography, a couple of guys went over and he seemed confused, the ex-president, Hu Jintao. He, he didn't seem to know which direction he's going. He's 79 years old. Um, and it could well be he's simply confused. As Xi Jinping said, we were just helping a confused old man off the stage in a kindly way because we were concerned about his health. But boy, it didn't seem that way as he was led away, not quite kicking and screaming, but certainly un- in, in uncertainty. He stopped for a second to talk to an icy and impassive Xi Jinping who didn't say much of anything to him except basically get a move on. And then he patted his protege, Li Ke-sheng, on the on the shoulder and then was escorted almost forcibly off the stage. And whether this was brutal or not, and whether this was planned or not, metaphorically, this was the image of the 20th Party Conference of Yu Jintao being led away rather brutally by an impassive Xi Jinping as the old Dungist order is led away in confusion and the only thing left is Xi, who is chairman of everything. And this, of course, makes the chance of war uh, much more likely because Xi is the one who's undone also Deng's foreign policy, which was all about hide your light. Let's go softly, softly as we rise. And, and Deng's basic view wasn't that he wasn't a Chinese nationalist, just a more savvy kind of Chinese nationalist. Than Xi Jinping, and let's compare their successes of their relative foreign policies. In the case of Don, the idea was that you were going to grow at eight or nine percent a year, and as you grow at this eight or nine percent a year, you hid yourself, you didn't make waves, and you would revisit all the issues you once wanted to after two more generations of economic growth from a position of undoubted dominance, but that the, the the message of the moment was to go softly, softly, and bide your time and hide your light, not cause waves with the Americans. Xi, true to his Maoist radical tendencies as a revolutionary leftist, is impatient with history in a way that Deng was not. Deng's record led to almost unparalleled success as China boomed, uh... China's economy is now, you know, in the last generation, the envy of the world, and is now easily the second greatest power in the world and a true superpower. And it achieved this all without scaring the horses. On the other hand, since Xi Jinping has come to power, he's picked to fight with the Indians by fighting an undeclared war along the line of actual control. He's disregarded international norms and claimed all of the South China Sea in defiance of the terms interna- of international law. He's picked a fight with the Japanese in the East China Sea. The Uyghurs have been treated so badly in Xinjiang, western province, that it's akin to genocide. Um, he's managed to alienate the Australians by declaring a hysterical trade war with them after they had the temerity to ask about COVID. He passively, through a Jack McCoy law and order style depraved indifference, allowed the COVID virus to spread to the rest of the world. He's picked a fight with the United States. He's bullied Taiwan. And by doing all these things in a way that Deng Xiaoping never would, he's managed to unwittingly unite the Indo-Pacific around the United States much more closely than it ever would have been otherwise. And this he's all done um, in a very short period of time since coming to power in late 2012. And so I think the results have been disastrous from a Chinese point of view. Also, economically, he's run the country into the ground. He's relied on state-owned enterprises, which are the least efficient part of the economy, diverted all kinds of resources to them. There's been a black hole that's developed over private banking and lending in China. There's a looming mortgage crisis, as the Chinese have built all kinds of apartments nobody wants to live in, there's been a mortgage strike, and China, because of its disastrous one-child policy, is gonna get old before it gets rich. So on the basis of policy, I think Deng is an unmitigated success, and Xi is an unmitigated disaster. But Xi, in his impatience over foreign policy, now that he has unfettered power after the 20th Party Congress, now is the dangerous time for the rest of us. And this is for two reasons. The only way that she can become the dominant power in his near abroad and all great powers want to dominate their near abroad, much as the United States came to dominate all of North America after signing the Jay Treaty with the British in the late 18th century, Alexander Hamilton knew that the Plains Indians, despite the cavalry genius of people like Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, were not going to stop westward expansion, nor were those nice Canadians No, we're the Mexicans. We were going to steal California fair and square. And so the United States was going to come to dominate North America, its near abroad, and become a great global power. And he saw that clearly and was right. And this is what rising powers want to do. They want to dominate the area around them. So it's not surprising if one follows realism that this is what China wants to do. What makes it dangerous is this aggressive, uh, let's, let's settle history now, and if we have to do it by force, so be it, approach of Xi Jinping as opposed to Deng Xiaoping. Xi, having picked all these fights, has united the region against him. And he knows the only way that he can come to dominate East Asia and the Indo-Pacific, where most of the world's future risk and most of the world's future growth are, is to break his navy out into the blue waters of the Pacific. So he has to break out from the first island chain. And if you have a look at a map, and again, we, we do geopolitics and we forget the geo, the geography of this, way too often but if you start and trace a line with your finger from Taiwan from Japan down to Taiwan through there in the north through the Philippines down to the Strait of Malacca by Malaysia Singapore and of course India then controlling the Strait of Malacca along with Indonesia along there what do you see you see a series of American of of pro-American states of allies of America and this of course keeps the Chinese hemmed in they can't break out and dominate the region and they want to do this for strategic reasons and trade reasons they're the dominant trading partner of all these countries but if the American Navy can shut things off at the Strait of Malacca and the Strait of Taiwan anytime they want this is a very precarious economic existence if there's going to be a direct Cold War competition between the US and the Chinese as there certainly is now I mean even my my uh, colleagues like Mr. Ferguson slow to the dance now acknowledge that we're deep into Cold War II. Uh, They used to be talking about Chimerica, but they've moved on to finally get it right. And I've seen this for quite some time for those of you who follow this. And this is one of our calls I'm proudest of. (coughs) So you have that going on. So they have to break out. and There are only three ways to break out. You go north, you go south, or you go overland. Well, if you go south, the problem for Xi Jinping is there are just too many navies to fight to dominate that. And control the Strait of Malacca. You'd have to take on the U.S. and then quite possibly Japan, the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and India. There are just too many folks that direction. You can go overland, the old Marco Polo spice trade route, which is in essence what the Belt and Road Initiative is. It's an effort to connect the rest of Eurasia through China Via trading links and then eventually strategic links. You build ports and harbors as the British Empire did. You set a string of pearls strategy through the Indian Ocean. You dominate regions such as Pakistan and you move this all the way into Africa for natural resources. And this makes eminent strategic sense and has achieved some success. The problem is that the Chinese are backing a bunch of countries that are bad credit risks, to put it mildly, that tend to default on their loans. And whereas The World Bank or the IMF or Western Bank loans roll their eyes and write off debts when these countries do something negatively. In the case of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, they have more mafia-style goals. In Sri Lanka, Hambantota, the major port of Sri Lanka, basically was given to China on a 99-year lease. It's an interesting choice of numbers. That's what the British used to do when they were in charge of their empire. They did everything in 99-year increments. And the Chinese have learned from their former oppressors as their empire emerges to do exactly the same. So they now control the major port of Sri Lanka for the next 99 years because the Sri Lankans couldn't pay up. And this is mafia style terms that, of course, make all the other countries less likely to get aid. As the leaders of Singapore and Malaysia have said, we want to renegotiate terms so the Chinese can't march in and take over our strategic patrimony. And along these lines, they've also recently in Uganda, in Kampala, taken over the main airport when the Ugandans have had trouble pay, paying. So this model is running into its limits as increasingly it's seen as neo-colonialism by much of Eurasia, which doesn't want to be under the, the Chinese thumbprint any more than it wants to be under the American thumbprint. And so the overland route is reaching difficulty. But if she heads north... He only has to fight basically two navies, the United States, so he's going to have to fight anyway, and Japan, and that's it. And better still, as the United States has placed an embargo or is in the process of really strategically limiting advanced computer chips to China, the area of the world where most advanced computer chips are made we now know is Taiwan, this is the last piece of the puzzle, also for the Chinese nationalist dream, the Dung inaugurated, that you reclaim the far flung bits of the Han Empire, you reclaim Tibet, you clamp down in Xinjiang province, the Muslim-dominated province in the west of China. You retake Macau and Hong Kong, check, 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 all firmly under your thumb. The last piece of the puzzle is the renegade province of Taiwan, which has been in independent in fact since the Chinese Civil War of 1949, but China as just a renegade province. It's the last piece of the puzzle. So if you go north, you get the computer chips you need, you break out of the first island chain lock and dominate East Asia, and you reunite your country. It's obvious that for all these strategic advantages, this is the area Xi is going to be looking. And after the 20th Party Conference, he no longer needs to worry about domestic political impediments of any kind. So we have an unfettered G, despite his <clears throat> very poor policy record, um, his overconfident, aggressive brinksmanship, which has united the Indo-Pacific largely against him. The United States has never had closer ties to Japan, to Australia. The Philippines are back on site after the Duterte hesitations. Singapore and Malaysia, although hedging, increasingly look like to America. Australia firmly Sundance to America's Butch Cassidy and India strongly on side. So you've united most of the great powers of the region. And this expression is seen in the <clears throat> quadrilateral initiative, the mini NATO nascent anti Chinese strategic group with superpower America, great power India, great power Japan, and Anglister member Australia, exactly who you'd want in any sort of great power configuration, all united against China. But despite all that, Xi now has unfettered power, and he's going to look north. That means towards Taiwan. This is the period of, of massive strategic political risk danger right now. The next one to say five years are the period of maximum peril. Because for all the reasons I mentioned before, I think China, in line with people like Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, and I was early to the game on this point. And again, I think we should be judged by our call record. I don't think anybody's going to do better than our 80%, which is best in the business. But I strongly agree, and have written in this before many times, for those of you who follow this, with Brands and Beckley, that the danger is that China is like the Kaiser in 1914 or Imperial Japan in the 1930s. It's a power that's at its that's peaking. It's not rising anymore. It's peaked. Its demography is terrible. Its internal debt is terrible. It's united the region against it. It's going to get old before it gets rich. For all these reasons, as it gains currency, there is an imperative to move now, to use it or lose it. As the Kaisers generals told him in 1914 the Russians are gaining on us and we haven't managed to catch up to the British. We're the second greatest power in Europe, but the Russians from a low base are now gaining on us, much as the Indians from a low base are now gaining on the Chinese. And so we can't count on effortlessly rising to a position of dominance. We have to use our military now while we have a window of opportunity or else. And the or else was the result, was the calamity that was World War I. Likewise, Imperial Japan grew by 6% in the 1920s, but only 1.6% in the 1930s, and with the oil embargo put on them, which is similar in some ways to the chip embargo the United States is beginning to place on China, they either had to leave, they were in trouble in the quagmire of China, the military, they either had to leave China then with their tail between their legs, which would, would have led to the fall of the military dominated government and national humiliation, or they had to strike out at the United States, and the result was Pearl Harbor. They had to use their military or lose it. There was only a limited window for them to act. That's the danger of a peaking power, and that's precisely what China is. We have an unfettered leader who sees all the negatives to his country, who knows he needs to move on Taiwan if he's going to move anywhere at all, but at the same time is worried sick that his limited window for ascendancy is now Xi has been forthright in saying that by the 100th anniversary of communist rule, which would be 2049, Taiwan will again be part of China one way or the other. But in essence, because of the the advent of the Quad gaining the Members working together more and more. Just today, in the newspaper, Australia and Japan, two members of the Quad, are beginning to train together in Australia and are strengthening their intelligence ties. This is happening every day, all the time, as the region gets used to working to check Chinese aggression. The AUKUS Defense Pact, which is an old fashioned defense pact between the US, the UK, and Australia over selling nuclear technology to the Australians so that they have a modern nuclear submarine force by 2030. It's another brick in the wall, to quote the the Pink Floyd, which is fantastic. Uh, For all these reasons, the allies are working together and getting better at it. So if China is gonna strike on Taiwan before the other allies can resupply and defend it, they're getting better at that, so it needs to move now. So the next five years are the years of maximum political risk peril in, in the Indo-Pacific. So after the 20th party conference we go in to this idea that this is now the key period that we're looking at. And so the reality is this must be done and dealt with now. The United States can, conversely must do more in the region, must set up an alliance system that deters the Chinese from acting under an unfettered overconfident G. We must tighten our defense ties with everyone in the region because if we can make G hesitate, For the next five years he then will be unable to act practically and then the region will pass to one where china is a superpower part of the system but doesn't try to become a revolutionary power and undo the american and western dominated system and instead the region fulfills its vast economic potential but now is the time of maximum peril so paradoxically rather than focusing on ukraine which is an utterly second order problem or american domestic politics the focus more and more should be on the Indo-Pacific, because after the 20th Party conference, the storm clouds are looming over China, and we need to see the coming storm. We can head it off, but only by more engagement, putting allies together in the region that deter Xi from acting, because if he doesn't act in the next five years, bright, uplit sunlands uh, sunlands are there. On the other hand, if we fail to act and he's tempted to go, he will go quickly, and then we're going to live in a calamity. It really is that important, it is that binary, and this is what we should be functioning on in foreign policy above all else. Because after the 20th party Congress, we need to see those storm clouds and clearly to avert the hurricane. Thanks very much, fun to do one and be back at my desk with you today. Hope you enjoy this. For those of you who haven't subscribed, and many, many of you have, and we're grateful, please do so. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give the $70 a year, $7 a month, or $70 a year, which is the minimum we're asking to give you cutting political risk edge over everyone else. We can put our call record next to anybody else's. Join us in explaining the fascinating new world we live in. Thanks a lot. And again, for the price of an espresso, $70 a year, please do give. Thanks very much.